0: Good afternoon and thank you for joining us. My name is Robin Maggio and I'd like to welcome you to our webcast, Getting Through to Your Teenager with ADHD with Elaine Taylor-Klaus and Diane Dempster. Today's webcast is part of the National Resource Center on ADHD's Ask the Expert series. The NRC is a program of CHAD funded by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and provides reliable science-based information about current medical research and ADHD management. It is a pleasure to introduce today's guest experts, Elaine Taylor-Klaus and Diane Dempster. Elaine and Diane are certified professional coaches, community educators, and advocates for families living with ADHD. They have six complex kids between their two families and are passionate about helping parents reduce the stress of raising children with ADHD. Experts in the field of coaching and ADHD, they are the co-founders of ImpactADHD.com, which is a global resource offering training, coaching, and guidance for parents. Again, we are pleased to welcome our guest experts today, Elaine and Diane.
1: Thank you, Robin. We are so glad to be here. This is Elaine.
0: And I'm Diane, just so you can hear the differences in our voices
1: right and we we are so excited to talk about getting through to your teenager with ADHD because this is a topic as you can imagine that comes up a whole lot in our world <laughs> so should we get started
2: yeah absolutely
1: awesome. okay so um so we're going to start by telling you a story i have a, a niece who's now about 23 years old and i learned something profound from her about a year ago that i now have we share with parents all the time because i just love it and she said to me you know, Angelaine, it's really pretty simple. All parents really want to hear from their kids is "thank you," and all kids really want to hear from their parents is "I'm sorry." And you know, when you think about it, I mean, Diane we and I, we've now talked about it a bunch since this idea came up. It just is so true, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it really is. <laughs> I mean, and I try to know, say it all the time. I try to say it all the time. <laughs> just because.
1: Now that you know, right. But but we just want to feel like our kids are, are not in greats, right? We want them to feel right. appreciative of what, of all the things we're doing for them. And they just want to feel like we get them and support them and, and, and that we're not and, constantly directing them,
2: right? Right, and that we're human, right? And so that we, think, yeah. you know, that, that we kind of normalize our experience and their experience. And, you know, it's interesting because I think, you know, we were alluding to the fact that we, we kind of relate to this, and, and let's take a minute and introduce ourselves. So this is, this is me and my two teenagers. I've got a 15-year-old and a 17-year-old, and, and Elaine, this is, go ahead, this is your family. This is
1: me and my three, now actually two teenagers and now a young adult, um, and uh, in our sort of crazy, wacky ADHD family of five, right? Mm-hmm. And... We are in this world and having this conversation with you, um, and, and here because um, both Diane and I are parents of kids with ADHD and, and other complex issues, learning issues, etc. And um, as we were sort of on our journeys to begin to figure out how to help and support our families, we each became coaches for different reasons um, professionally. But what we discovered was that when we became coaches, we became much better parents to these complex kids. And when we met each other actually at a CHAG conference um, and discovered that we had had this parallel experience, we sort of looked at each other and went, whoa, we, we got to share this. We got to share this with other parents because this is teachable and this this stuff really works, right?
2: And so what Robin said at the beginning is, you know, impactADHD.com was really created as a way to train and coach and support um, parents of kids with ADHD and other challenges. And right, when I say challenges, people... go ahead.
1: Well, um, one thing I would add is, is because we realized is there's a lot of support for kids out there, but there wasn't a lot of support for parents. Mm-hmm. Like, Chad does right. a phenomenal job with providing information. And and then if you happen to be in an area with a local support group, then there's some great local support available. But it's what do you do with that information? How do you take it to the next level that we felt like as parents was missing? And that's really what we work on doing with families is time to sort of take all that information you got about what's going on with your kids and put it into practice. And that's really what we're going to talk about today.
2: Well, and I think that it's good you, you, know, you were just talking about challenges. I mean, and, and you know, kind of the slide here is kind of what, what do you struggle with? And, and I would encourage you to just take a minute and kind of write down and, and maybe even tweet about it if you've ever, I can figure out how the, the chat and the tweet work. But it's, <laughs> you know, what are the things that we, because we, you know, at Impact ADHD, we've created, we've identified six key challenge areas. But so the, the kind of things we want to highlight here that you might be challenged with are disorganization. Or uh, hyper-focused, the kid on the video game is hyper-focused. And, and gaming is sometimes a challenge just in and of itself. Um, especially with teenagers, right? Especially with teenagers. And it's not just gaming, it's electronics generally. Um, but, you know, disrespectful conversations. Um, uh, your kid might have anxiety or overwhelm. You might have a t- hard time getting them up in the morning or getting them to sleep at night. But no matter what your issues are, you know, I, I want to say that that almost all of us are going through some version of this. And so yeah. what you're experiencing as challenges with your teenager right now is pretty common. And as Elaine mentioned earlier, you know, we've we've identified some things that you can do that can really make a difference for you and for your teens in terms of helping them to be more successful, helping your family life to be more calm and really moving some of the situations forward.
1: Well, and you know, it strikes me about what you said is that, you know, what we sometimes forget as parents, particularly as our kids, as our teenagers get a little older and start pushing back and separating, is that these are some of the issues we're struggling with. We're trying to get them to do what they need to do. And they're also the issues that they're struggling with. And so part of the, the what we want to raise in the conversation today with sort of getting through to your teenager is to remember that the teenagers are starting to step into a new place where they are separate autonomous human beings with their own thoughts and their own minds, and their own agenda. And, and, you know, for years we're raising these kids and they're following our directions. And as they stop doing that and start having more and more of a mind of their own, that can be really hard for us to deal with. Mm -hmm. So there's this dance, this Dancing happens with all parents and teenagers, regardless of whether the kids have ADHD. They get sort of amplified when when we're dealing with complex homes with with kids who have a harder time doing in sort of the basics of life and school that are expected of them. Um, it just sort of adds this other dynamic to that already sort of interesting, sometimes contentious, uh, challenging time of, of separation
2: that, that our kids yeah, are going yeah. through. So we're gonna so we're gonna teach you guys a tool today, but before we do that, we want to kind of give you kind of two overarching context for supporting teens and really finding the path to get through to them. And then um, you know, and so let's let's focus on those first. And so you know, we're dealing with strategy, and then we'll go to the strategy, right? So we're dealing with ADHD, and that's the first thing to remember that it's in the brain, and and it's part of everything that happens with our kids. And us, as well if we happen to be ADHD, or if, like me, you're an overwhelmed middle-aged menopausal single mom, um, <laughs> there's, there's some kind of neurology that impacts everything that we do. And so if we remember that what's going on in the teenager brain is partly because they're a teenager and they've got hormones and they've got maturity going on and or, or immaturity depending on their, their level, and, and then they've got ADHD on top of it, so you've got all of this stuff that's just really biology that impacts. How they relate to the world, how well they're able to handle life. Um, they have executive function challenges, and they have um,
1: decision-making challenges.
2: Exactly, <laughs> right. exactly. But they don't
1: think that they do because they think they're they're mature and they're developed. And yet, we know that there's probably another five ten years for most of them for their brains to fully develop. So there's that disconnect that's happening too.
2: Right, and the thing that we talk about a lot is. When you're looking at a challenge with a, a kid, a teen, with, you know, whatever age group your child happens to be in, is kind of this whole, is it naughty or is it neurological? Because a lot of times if our kids are being snarky is the word I love to use, right? So I have two snarky right. teenagers. If they're being snarky or they're forgetting things or they're, or they're disorganized or they're having a hard time stepping up, you know, part of that is, is going to be neurological. Um, yeah. It it's, it's impacts literally every aspect of what they do.
1: And that's not to make excuses for snarky behavior or rude, rude conversations. It's not to to make it okay for them to behave that way, but it does make a difference if we understand where, where that dynamic is coming in, where, where the neurology is coming into play and begin to set expectations accordingly and, and fairly for where they are developmentally, not where we think they should be based on their age. And Oftentimes, we, we forget that our kids tend to be developmentally delayed, sometimes even three to five years behind, behind their peers. And so if right. we're so, looking at, at a 16 year old and expecting them to be behaving like a 16 year old going on 17, when developmentally in that area, they're just like a 12 year old or a 13 year old, then the expectations can be out of whack. And so we need to to do that sort of homework and research and detective work to figure out how to set expectations that meet them where they are. Sorry, Diane, what we yeah. have.
2: no, that's right. I was just going to give an example of that. So if you've got a child who needs to be reminded to feed the dog every day you know you might get really frustrated it's like why do i have to remind you every day you always forget you never remember but if i realize that my child is not going to just remember they need help in remembering i can help them come up with a system to remembering whether it's a, a you know something on their iphone or you know something that every day when i brush my teeth i'm going to go feed the dog so that i can re, you know remember brushing teeth may not be a great example right because they always forget to brush their teeth too but the, <laughs> the point is The point is that you want to help them to learn how to remind themselves and create a reminder system rather than how do I help them to just remember to feed the dog. And um, and so if I know that it's about their brain and their brain has a hard time remembering, I'm going to approach it differently than if I just get frustrated because they never take the time to do it.
1: Right. Well, and the, the other thing I would just add on this to, to sort of put a capper on the brain part of the conversation is, is I was doing a piece with Jeff Copper with Attention Talk Radio several years ago, and he, he had this great thought, uh, he had this aha realization when he was, he was having an argument with one of his teenagers, that arguing with a teen is sort of like arguing with a drunk person. Like, they just right. don't at that moment have the capacity. They're not really in their right mind when they get triggered.
2: <laughs> right. And
1: so... To also recognize that there's that teen brain thing that's happening simultaneously. And so sometimes when when they're sort of out of it or losing it or angry or screaming and they don't even know why, is to remember not to take it personally, that they don't even know why, <laughs> you know, yeah. take a break, well, pull back. And actually, that's, that's
2: a the, great segue. Yeah, that's a great segue because the second kind of contextual thing we want to talk about is keeping things calm. And I think that yeah. you were just describing this, is that any of us, when we get triggered, Whether it's our kids getting triggered or us getting triggered, um, we're not problem solving. I mean, the reality is that, you know, what we really want to do is we want to work with our kids, we want to collaborate with them, we want to help them to learn how to manage themselves, we want to problem solve. And if we're triggered or they're triggered, not a whole lot of problem solving is going on.
1: Great. So, so... In this realm in terms of keeping things calm, particularly as our kids get older and into their teen years, it's really, really important that we keep our focus and our attention on maintaining the relationship with our kids. Because this is when we, if we get really stuck on how many times they've left the wet towel on the floor and we forget to stay connected with our kid and that, you know, she might be upset because of something that happened with her friends that day. When we get too focused on the task and let go of the relationship, it begins to create this this divide between us and our kids. And at the end of the day, as they get older, there are some ways in which they need us more, and we want them to turn to us more and and ask for support more and ask for help more. And when the relationships are strong, they're going to do that. And when the relationships are divided, it creates it it makes it harder and harder for them to to. Turn to us and ask for help as things get more complicated for them and it will
2: right yeah and i guess the the, the great example is kind of you know that i've got a you know a new client who's been working on on this and just starting to focus in on a relationship and and she you know she's got days that her kids won't even talk to her because there's so much tension between the two of them and i know that happens to a lot of people their kids just kind of shut themselves off in their room and i've got a pretty i've got a pretty contentious teenager as well, but what I would tell you is that we still get triggered, and we still lose our cool with each other, but I don't know, one time this weekend, we kind of had, we had it out, and within 10 minutes, he was back in my room, he was, he was apologizing, I was apologizing, I'm sorry I got triggered, I need to, I needed to take a deep breath, and I didn't, and I'm sorry, and it's, and, and and if you really focus on that, it, you can quickly move back to, okay, well, how do we fix the situation, instead of just being angry at each other.
1: Right. And so there's a lot in there that's about when you when you really focus on the relationship and, and keeping things calm, that's actually the key to helping to sort of foster ownership for them and helping them to feel empowered and supported and, and to know that you're on their team, that you're in their corner. You may not always agree with what they do or the choices they make, and that's fine, but but they still want to know that you're on their side and, and that you're still supporting them and that you're in this together. And that. It sounds so simple, and and yet it can be a profound, have a very profound impact on on how things begin to shift in a home when you have teens, particularly teens with ADHD.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So are we ready to move into our strategy?
0: Yes, yes.
2: Okay. Awesome. So we're going to teach you a three-step process, and it's got an acronym, so it makes it super easy to remember if you want to write it down. The the acronym is ACE. And it's acknowledge, compassion, and explore. And we'll go through each one of those. But it's really a a three-step process that's going to help you to keep the relationship in the forefront and to help you move things forward uh, when you have these challenge areas.
1: Well, and the other thing I would say is that it's a really good process for, for those of you who struggle with communication, where you feel like you just every time you start talking to each other, you end up screaming at each other, or you, right. you're trying to ask your kid something really simple, and it turns into this big blow-up, and you're really not sure how that happened. ACE is a really terrific process to use when you're starting any kind of communication with your kid, whether you're asking them for something or redirecting a behavior or anything. It's, it's great to start with this process.
2: Yes, so, Diane, start with, start with the A and A. The A and A. There we go. Is acknowledge their experience. And so this is one of the things that I think, you know, we all want this, but especially teenagers is that they want to be seen. They want to be heard. And if we start with one of the things that I see parents do, and I'm guilty of this as well, is that if our kid comes to us with a problem, we start throwing solutions at them. We just, like, jump over everything <laughs> and it's just like, Oh, you, yeah. Well, you we talk her? about this, right? <laughs> yeah, or if we see a problem, it's like, oh, you're having a hard time getting your homework in. If you'd only use your planner, right? So we just right. start throwing jump into the solution. So we start at the beginning by saying acknowledging their experience, and it's about saying that you know, wow, I can tell you're really upset about this, or I, I, I bet it's really hard for you. And um, part of this is being willing to consider that part of what's going on is is neurological and normal, either because they're ADHD or because they're a teenager or both. Right. And, um, and part of this is about kind of normalizing their experience and, and acknowledging that, you know, I, I get that you're going through this. It makes perfect sense that you're going through this. What would you like? Right.
1: And, and, well, just, you know, th- it makes perfect sense that you're going through this, and this must be really hard for you. Like, to acknowledge, mm-hmm. you know, we get frustrated, for example, that our kids won't get off their cell phones and talk to us or, you know, whatever it is. We want them to get off their cell phones for us, right? Right, okay. um, everything. Just to, just to
0: acknowledge and say,
1: I know that it's so compelling, and it's really hard to put it down when there are people, when it's beeping at you and there's a group chat going on. God, that's really hard. Just that acknowledgement so that it's not blaming them or judging them for it, but recognizing that they're having this sort of human experience, this moment of struggling with doing something that's being expected of them, and it's hard for them. So, well, I mean, you might, dig,
2: yeah, you, you, you might need to dig deep for this one because you know it. it you <laughs> have to go back and say, as I remember being a teenager, you know what it's like to to you know it, it's it's about remembering what it's like to be interrupted from doing something you really like to do, or um, connecting
1: with your friends, or connecting with I was, with your I was working with a client on on this issue once. She was really struggling with having her teenage daughter put down her cell phone at at I guess it was the dinner table, and when we got into it. What she realized was her daughter was actually talking with friends, and she was having a social time, and so she was having fun, and the mom was not because she wasn't doing what she wanted her to do, but when she was able to acknowledge, I know that this is fun for you. This is a social time for you, and right now, I want you to be with the family, it, was, it shifted what was happening because the kid didn't feel attacked initially. First, she was seen and recognized, right? Yeah. Then well, there's yeah. step two.
2: Well, let me just, what came up for me as you were saying that is is with my son is that um, I found out that when he's gaming, it's it's not just about the social, but he's made commitments to his friends. And so they're on a team and they're working together online and it's like, I can't, I can't let down my team members. And he feels very guilty and torn trying to leave a game on time because he's, he's, you know, he's part of a team and feels like abandoning his friends.
1: Wow. Yeah that's an amazing thing to be able to acknowledge. Yeah. And then and so step 2 the C is compassion is to connect with the compassion. And so and that's about really um not just acknowledging but but having um a sense of connection to what it must feel like to feel that way. So maybe it's bringing in your own experience. You know, I, I, it must be really hard for you to do that. I hate it when I feel that way or I hate it when that, it's really hard for me when I have to walk away from something and I'm in the middle of something. Um, so that it sort of humanizes you a little bit showing some compassion and some um, uh, the ability to relate to their experience and the challenge that they're facing. Um, If you as an adult, as a parent, have your own issues with executive function or ADHD, to be able to bring that in and say, I know it's really hard for me to remember to do something, and so I use strategies for that. I get how hard it can be. Um, You know, to really connect with their experience and, and and it sort of enhances the acknowledgement and validating it, and also makes you a human piece in the in the puzzle instead of some outsider stepping in trying to tell them one more thing to do. Diane, well, and the thing asked? I want
2: to yeah, you know, the thing I want to add here is that this is the place I want to remind you that acknowledging and showing compassion does not mean that you're saying that it's okay, right? So right. it's. This is the one thing that people say is like, well, if I acknowledge them, then I'm giving them permission to do it. And it's, you're not. I mean, you're, you're acknowledging that it's difficult for them. You're acknowledging and, and connecting with the emotion by saying, "I've felt that way before." Right. Um, and and so it's really more about putting the relationship first and and getting them to connect with you so that you can move on to the next step, which is ultimately solving the problem. But if you skip over the connection to just problem solving. Then you're missing the opportunity to get buy-in. You're missing the opportunity to help them to really collaborate with you in terms of the next step. Which are we ready to move on to that?
1: Yep, let's because uh, this is really the key,
2: which is it's exploring, to explore.
1: right? So, so once you've acknowledged them and had some compassion for their experience, then you can move to solutions, redirection, request. You know, it depends on you know, whatever you're dealing with. But then you can begin to shift or request a change in behavior. But by doing it in this way, you're no longer putting them immediately on the defensive. You've sort of had them be seen, you've had them be recognized, and now you can say, okay, let's see what we could do differently, what could happen differently, um, so that you're beginning to, to talk together and collaborate with each other instead of just being standing there with your hand on your hip telling them what to do. Because teenagers we want them to be able to start making their own decisions and, and doing their own problem solving. And so this process gives us an opportunity to practice it with them and give them an opportunity to practice problem solving in a constructive way. All right. Diane, what would you add?
2: Well, I think that, um, you know, the, the piece here, again, to go back to the beginning is that, you know, what we really want to be doing is problem solving and, and, again, I like the way you said, you, you know, you might end up making a request. You might end up kind of putting them in the lead. Um, but whatever you do, this is just a, you want them to be at the table. So if you're saying, I need yeah. you to do this differently, or if you're saying, um, I, I know you want to solve this problem, how can I help you? Or if you're saying, we need to work together on this, no matter who's, in, who's on first, and we, we focus a lot on trying to help the kids to be on first more, more and more as they get older and are more mature. But yes. what this enables you to do is just to just create the environment that allows this exploration to happen very differently. And I think the thing we talk a lot of in our programs about that we, we aren't going to spend a lot of time on today is just the, this word explore. And mm-hmm. one of the tools we use a lot is is curiosity. And I think yeah. that that can be a really great place to start when you're in this in this stage of the ACE process is to say, so what is really going on here and what is it that makes it hard? And and what do you think you want to do different? You know, and so kind of staying in a place of curiosity rather than a judgment, well we've got to fix this, this has to change, blah blah blah. You're gonna really be very you're gonna you're gonna explore it very differently with each other if you can keep it open and curious.
1: Well, and the other thing that the curiosity offers is is you're really inviting them to start taking the lead in their life, which is ultimately what we want because, you know, at some point when they leave home, whether it's 18, 19, 20, whenever it is, we want them to begin to feel confident in in how do they make decisions. And if we're making them for them all the time because we feel like they can't or they're not going to make good ones, then they're never going to learn how to do it. it. And it's a muscle that has to be practiced, if you will. Right And so helping them understand what their motivators are, helping them find the buy-in to see something different, to want to see something changed, um, will happen much more readily if you, if you use this, this ACE process and come from a place of acknowledging that what they're trying to do is hard instead of judging that they're not doing it. And that's really the shift that we're talking about here is coming from a place where you're connecting on the relationship instead of just judging the behavior.
2: Right, but which is a great segue because I think that part of this is kind of what role you play as a parent, and I think that, you know, I think that that's the piece that that a lot of us lose track of when our kids become teens because, you know, we've been, many of us have been directing their lives up until they become teens or maybe even, you know, when they are teens, and our kids want to and, and need to become more and more independent, And you do understand your child better than anyone else, and that is a good thing. And sometimes, and it creates some conflict. And sometimes, but ultimately, what we want to be doing in this age group is handing off the baton. Right. And you know, and and so I think one step at a time is a part of what exploring is about. Is not just solving the problem, but it's what I I call helping them figure out figure it out how to figure out how to figure it out. Gonna say that again. We're helping them to figure out how to figure it out. So yeah. the example is, you know, my child has a hard time capture, or, um, capturing homework assignments. They're they're late with assignments all the time. So it might be that you go, okay, I've got to help them figure out how to um, use a planner is what the, the the initial reaction that we might have. And, and the reality is Always. that, that it, before that is really what you need to do is you need to help your child to come up with a reminder system that works for them for their homework. And above that is really you want your kids to understand that they are going to be reminder systems throughout your lives. And they need to figure out what kinds of reminder systems work for them and what kind of reminder systems don't work for them. And I think about um, my kid's dad who's constantly walking around with little yellow pads of paper with notes on it to himself. And he loves that. It. It's a great way for him to do it. He sits down every night. He writes down what he needs to remember. He's got, you know, seven different pads all over the house. That would make me crazy.
0: And if that they would make me
2: but it works for him. It makes my son crazy. But if I if I go to my son, okay, so what do you want to do to remember? You know, what are some things you might try? And that's really what we're talking about exploration here is it's exploring. It's not a, well, here's my problem, here's the solution sort of thing. With teams particularly, you want to set this up so it's more like a detective game than yeah. anything else. Because some stuff that works today might not work tomorrow. And some you know I, I we're work at our house right now, I don't know what you guys are working on at your house right now, Elaine, but I'm working on um, getting up in the morning, and my son's extremely interested in being at school on time, but he's having a really hard time getting out of the door in the morning, so we're like, okay, what are seven things we could try? It's like, well, I could throw the dog on the bed, I could squirt water on you, we could you know you could go to bed earlier you could i mean so we're just kind of exploring and coming up with ideas um. But we're doing it together, and we're doing it from a place of curiosity and detective work rather than, okay, what's the solution that's going to fix this problem?
1: Right. Which is, you know, it's that whole, it's the parable. You're teaching him to fish long term. You're teaching him to learn how to put strategies in place for himself and his life instead of just solve this one problem.
2: Right. Right. And
1: that's our job.
2: All right, wrap up, because it's time. Wrap up. Yeah, it's time. We're going to move on to questions in a second. And we won't spend a lot of time on this, but just to give you a flavor of, of one of the things we said at the beginning is that it's not just about getting this information. It's about turning it into action, and that's really what coaching does. It's different than just training. And so we ask these four questions at the end of every one of our classes and our programs, just as a way for you to kind of wrap it up in your head. So the first one is, what did I focus on or pay most attention to today?
1: And so that's for you to answer, and, and we know what we were talking about, but while we were talking about it, what were you thinking about? What were you paying attention to? Was it a particular child? Was it a spouse? Was it yourself? Was it, you know, one of the topics? What really stuck out for you?
2: Mm-hmm. What's, and then the second one is, what, what's my clarity or takeaway? What, what's one aha uh-huh that you had as we were going through this? And then the third from that
1: is what's one realistic action step that you want to take from here? From what you learned in this, you know, brief 30 minutes, what's one thing you want to commit to do?
2: And we say one thing. Yes, we say that's one thing. And, you know, we don't ask you, we don't say what are all the things you're going to do? You know, we really want you to focus in on one, and we know that you know by by identifying one, maybe two action steps, it'll help to set you up for success and, and help you to to be more able to move it forward. You're going to add something else, Elaine?
1: No, just that last that, that we always want to ask ourselves: How do I set myself up for success? So is it you know mm-hmm. keep it limited to one thing? Is it get some accountability structure for myself? Do I put it on the calendar? Like, what do you need? What needs to happen for you to be successful? in that commitment that you're making, that action step you want to take. So those are this, what we call the final four questions to help you with any kind of learning environment to, to, to make sure you're sort of locking in the learning before we move on. And I think, Robin, we're probably ready for questions. Diane, is there anything? Else? I guess we want to tell them before Q&A, we, we do want to tell people that if they like what they're hearing and they want to find out more from us, we have a huge amount of resources and information available um, at impactadhd.com. There's a free motivation guide for parents. There, there's just all kinds of, of, of information on the website. It's very much user-friendly and designed to to help support parents in taking all the information you know about ADHD and really figuring out what do you do about it, and how do you how do you make it make it work.
2: So, Robin, I guess we're ready for questions.
0: Okay, great. Thank you, Elaine and Diane. That was some really wonderful information. So our first question, we actually have a number of questions that have come in just sort of about parent-teenager relationships in general, and a number that have a theme um, about emotional regulation and really anger. And so one of our questions is from a parent wondering, how can they not walk on eggshells around their teenager who gets angry or upset if they bring up something that, you know, he should or shouldn't do?
1: Well, I guess the first thing I would say is, um, is you're so not alone (laughs) and, um, and we're going to try it because we know there are a lot of questions. We're going to try to bottom line these answers. Diane and I are going to try to be succinct, but, but as thorough as we can. Um, But so I I just want to acknowledge that you are so not alone. This is is one of the most common challenges we hear from parents of teens all the time. Um, Because what's happening is our teens are getting frustrated. They can't do what they know they should be able to do. They want to be able to do and they can't. And that's maddening for them. They're they're getting angry. They're getting frustrated. They don't want to disappoint people. They don't want to disappoint themselves. And so Actually, this strategy that we just taught you, the ACE strategy, is exactly what what I would suggest that you start trying to use when you have conversations. Before you go into redirection or telling him what he did wrong or what he did differently, start by understanding what what would be making him angry. Acknowledge that this has got to be hard for him or frustrating or or maddening and, and have compassion for the fact that that anger is coming from a real place.
2: I am. What would you add? Well, I think it kind of goes back to the whole when when to do it as well, and it's and it's hard because when they are triggered, um, you're you're going to have a very different conversation when you're not. And so one of the things that I tend to do is I have Saturday morning at Waffle House conversations. You know, so it's mm-hmm. like there's certain there's certain conversations that you just let go of them until you're in a place where everybody's calm and nobody's going to get triggered. And there are some things that it's hard to you, you know even you mention certain words and everybody's triggered. But with those, you you know you, you reach agreement and you say, well, we know we really need to talk about this thing. And I know that we all tend to get a little upset when we do. You, maybe you solve the problem of how do we figure out how to talk about this when everybody's getting upset about it.
1: That's exactly what I worked on with, with, with a client today. It was like we, we weren't even getting to the issue. First, we were getting to, the, to being able to have the conversation about the issue. And sometimes you've just got to start by paying attention to it. And, and beware of the language things that we do that inadvertently put our kids on the defensive, uh, when we start a sentence with the word you, it tends to put people on the defensive. Um, so, you know, instead of, you need to do this, if you shift it to, it would be great if this could get done, um, it sounds very, it sounds like it's manipulative, but but truly language has a lot of power, and language can trigger people. Um, and so asking, you know, asking are you sure is sort of doubting people. Starting with a, a sentence with a word you can put them on the defensive. So sort of pay attention to how you're framing the conversation as well is the other thing I would add.
2: Yeah, the, um, the thing that comes up as you say that, Elaine, is, is whenever you use I need you to, you know, it's something I don't remember yeah. when you got it, but if they said, it, you know, even if you shift it to it would be wise for you to. Or, you know, it, it might It'd make be great sense. if you so, could. They, yeah. yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, cuz you don't want it to be about it, it's not I need you to. I it's I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about them. And it's really about what they're responsible for, not I don't want them to do it to make me feel better, right?
0: Okay, great. Thank you. Now, what about situations where your child, you know, is is gotten to that point where they're very angry? Can you provide a couple tips on helping them de-escalate? Ooh. Well, I
2: I want to start by saying that we teach this all the time. We've got a a whole lesson that we do on on trigger management, but there's really kind of four key key steps. One is kind of, you know, understanding what the triggers are, and I think that one of the things that can be really helpful is as a family, and a lot of us have family meetings with our kids or, or at least kind of have regular conversations with our families, but it's kind of like if, if everybody is working on their triggers and, and I'm trying not to yell so much or I'm trying not to lose my cool and you're trying to lose, not to lose your cool and we're going to all do it together, that's the first piece that can really help to normalize it. And then, the sec- then it's about really kind of understanding what your triggers are. You know, what are some of the things that trigger you? What are some of the things that trigger your kids? And then the steps we go through are, one, is to reclaim your brain. And so, you know, helping your kids to learn to take a few deep breaths or uh, to go take a time out in their room, not a time out, but a a chill out in their room. Um, Maybe you need to take a chill out in your room. But, you know, to get some space or get, you know, a few sips of water or whatever else to reclaim your brain. And then come back to the table and say, okay, how do we really want to look at this? What's going to move the situation forward? What's another way to look at this? Um, And then move forward from there? Is kind of a simple thing that I would say. Elaine, what would you add?
1: I think just to reiterate the, the, the importance of not – once someone's triggered and once anyone in the dynamic is triggered, whether it's you or your kids or your spouse or anybody, you have to stop. You, you're mm-hmm. not going to get any real problem-solving done. You're not going to fix the solution if you keep going and keep going. And, now, and sometimes, particularly teenagers, they're going to want – they're going to keep going. No, 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 I'm calming up. I want to talk about this now. But understand that that you're dealing with a a triggered when you're dealing with a triggered brain, we call it amygdala hijack, right? A different part of your brain is taken over, you're in fight or flight, and you're not really thinking reasonably. And so you have to be willing to stop, even though there's something you really want to pursue or get done or a conversation, you have to be willing to be the parent and to stop it for a moment until until everyone's calmed down enough to really have a reasonable conversation. And when your kids are, are Frustrated and ang- angry and sort of losing it, that is not the time to say, finish unloading that dishwasher, young man. You know, you need to be able to sort of walk away, let everybody calm down, and then be, come back and say, you know, have the conversation and say, and, and, you know, it, the dishwasher is still waiting.
2: And, that, and that's hard to do because a lot of times we end up getting triggered and it's like, how dare he speak to me like that, right? And so we're triggered yeah. and and so what happens is that we get into this mode where we need it to stop immediately. And so there's this conflict because we know that we, there's part of us that wants it to stop immediately and there's part of us that knows it's not going to stop until everybody calms down. And so you end up kind of in this sort of, what do I do? So the, the lesson for us is, okay, if we calm down, then we'll remember, you know what? This is not going to get solved if my kid is triggered. I need right. to wait until everybody's calm.
1: Right. Well, and there's I mean, we, in, in one of the classes we teach, we talk about, you know, sometimes you have to look at a situation. Sometimes you're going to decide um, to let the meltdown happen. And then sometimes you, you have to decide to stop it. And so that's another piece is to sort of know when, when it's, it's worth stopping and when you need to walk away. So there's a lot of nuance to it
0: what about um we have a lot of questions parents wondering about motivation motivation motivating their teen um so just maybe starting (laughs) off with a general one so how can you motivate your teen to do things such as chores exercise taking medication doing homework i mean i'm sure there's a number of different examples you could you could use but motivation
1: oh my goodness we do so much work around this is like Probably one of the biggest topics of conversation.
2: You yeah, I think that, that so that there's the part there's a couple pieces to this. Number one is under, understanding. And I think a lot of a lot of you understand that you when not ask the question that motivation is a key part of uh, helping the ADHD brain to engage. Correct. And there really are kind of five different things that motivate the ADHD brain. Um, it's kind of the, the framework that we use. And and Elaine, I don't know if we want to just start by listing them. Yeah,
1: yeah. this is something that we sort of borrow some of it from David work with ADCA and we sort of added our own little spin on it. But there are basically five motivators for, for the way the ADHD brain works. And one of them is novelty, which is, you know, anything new or innovative. Um, we tend to be motivated by urgency. That's when that other part of the brain takes over, the fight or flight. Um, we're often motivated by interest. You know, if you've heard yourself say he doesn't do anything he doesn't want to do, it's because he's motivated by what's interesting, but not by what's not. Um, And then some of us are also motivated by competition. Um, That is not a universal. I think that when you have the coexisting condition with anxiety, some people with anxiety are not motivated by competition, so it just depends. Um, but for a lot of people, it's a good motivator. And the last one is um, is play or fun, humor. You know, we we call it lots of different things. But just, you know, it, enjoyment, um, having fun can be a really great motivator.
2: Creativity fits in there and, and doing things uh, yeah. that you know, stimulate the creative brain. But I think that, the you know, one of the common mistakes we make as parents is that we try to, we want to motivate our kids to do what we want them to do. And it's especially <laughs> in nature, So it's like, how do I motivate my child to pick up their laundry? How do I motivate my child yeah. to blah blah? And and the reality is that part of the you know you can you can externally motivate your kids till the cows come home, but if you end up a lot of times hitting the wall because if they really are not interested in doing it, you don't have a lot of buy-in. You know, there's only so much you know how much so much uh, rewards are taking away that you can you can get into before you kind of hit this wall of if your kid really is not interested in doing it. It's, it's hard, and so part yeah. of it is figuring out how to prioritize what you are and are not motivating and so for example the great the you know the thing to look at if you're having a hard time motivating your child is how interested are they really in doing it and is there any aspect to the situation that they might be interested in doing so i I was on the call last week with a a group and the, the mom said i'm trying to get my daughter to go to bed at night and i said well you know what problem are you trying to solve and and what's her buy-in and everything else? And, and what, what it came around to was that she really needed her to get up so she could get up to school and out of the door on time. But the mom was focused on getting her to bed at night. The daughter had absolutely no interest in going to bed at night. The daughter had a lot of interest in getting to school on time. So if they start from there where there is an interest in an engagement, you know, ultimately the daughter might come up with this idea that maybe if I got to bed earlier, I might be able to get out the door in the morning more. But if you start with what they really are interested in, Rather than what you're interested in, it can be a much more successful uh, route with teenagers, particularly. What would you add? Well,
1: I think that that you know, if we were to bottom line this whole presentation about how do you get through to your teenager with ADHD in particular, it's to ask the question, "What's in it for them?" Mm-hmm. Because that they need the motivation. Their ADHD brain needs the motivation. The teenage brain needs to have some. You know, is all self interest, and so if if want them to do it because it's the right or it's good for them or because it's a lesson they're going to learn or you know it it's not likely to be as effective as if um they want to do it because that's where their friends are or um you know there's there's something in it for them whatever that is and so i think that's a huge piece of motivation is we we tend to start with what we think should motivate them as adults, and we want to sort of shift our brain to to look at it from what actually motivates them as teens. We have to sort of look at it through their lens.
2: Well, I think that's important because I think you think about when we we teach this a lot, and Chad teaches this too, is when, you know, when kids are young, you want the motivation, the motivators and the rewards to be very immediate. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, when I ask a parent, well, what, what is your child's motivation to doing well in school? Well, they know if they do really well in school, then they're going to get good grades, and if they get good grades, then they'll get into the college, and they'll get, you know, and it's like, okay, now all of a sudden I'm talking about things that are happening five years from now. And the reality is that the, the, a teenage brain and an ADHD brain really has a hard time connecting to five years from now, and you've got to really kind of find ways to connect with what's going on right now.
0: <laughs> Great, thank you. What about um, managing boundaries and responsibility expectations with, with your children with ADHD? We had a number of parents asking about, um, you know, how do you know when, when you should continue to help and then when too much um, support is there? Ooh.
1: So, Diane, can I start? Because I just, had, yeah. just got off the phone with a client an hour ago that we were having this kind of conversation. Um was I was working with a couple, and we were talking about a fourteen fifteen year old teenage girl and it wasn't about um, you know school stuff as much it was it was boundaries about you know going out on her own and letting them know um, where she was going and so I introduced a strategy for them to use that we call a designed alliance and the idea is to have a very transparent and open conversation with your child or your teen about really working together to get very clear on what the expectations are. Oftentimes I think some of the miscommunication that happens between parents and kids and between spouses is that we sort of make assumptions about what we think the other person thinks we're expecting. Like we know what we expect, but we don't always communicate it. And so when we when you design it, you actually speak out loud some of those assumptions we make. And, and it's sort of a very simple two-step process. You start by saying, here's what you can count on me for. You can count on me. So those parents were saying, you can count on us to support you, to, to be there for you, to pick you up when you 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 know when you need to be picked up. Um, you can count on us not to try to control every moment of your life and to give you freedom and flexibility. And and then it turned to, and what we need from you is to let us know where you're going, to communicate openly with us, We you know, to... to treat us with respect and to tell us the truth and you know so they were able to begin to plan out a very open conversation with their child that then moved to the next step was letting the child say well here's what you can count on me for mom and dad and here's what I need from you and and being able to go back and forth with this conversation but to really start by opening up you can count on me for this I am giving you my word and then I need this. Instead of starting with you need to do this, right? You can't do that because that puts them on the defensive and this design process really opens up a way to communicate that's very, very different um, and really fosters the kind of trust and, and relationship that, we're, that all of us, I think, most of us are looking for.
2: So I go a little bit different direction. It's hard to know kind of what the question was that they were asking, but it's kind of like yeah. if you're thinking about a child and it's like how independent can they be and how much help do they really need because we know that mm-hmm. there's the word we use is scaffolding right so it's kind of like how much scaffolding do they need and where you know should I let them flounder or should I let them experience natural consequences or when should when do I you know when do I do what and I think that you know the, the thing that we want to say is that you know you want to meet them where they are and raise the bar from there it's kind of what we say and and it's about you know so it's like how do you do that well you, you know it's kind of trial and error and so you know you let them try some stuff and if they they don't do it I think or they can't do it the, the, the rule of thumb that I use is kind of like if they can do it independently 80% of the time, that means that they can do it. If they can't do it independently 80% of the time, then, then chances are they're struggling with that that step. And so, you know, if you're talking about doing chores or, or um, you know, so when our, our kids are really young, we might, you know, tell them each each chore one at a time. Or And when they're older, you might just say, hey, don't forget your chores, and they already know what they need to do. Um, but you're really trying to figure out what can they do independently and and then push them to the next level of independence. And I think that's the most important piece of it is to not, not look at them from where you want them to be. Like if they're, you talked about the three to five challenge earlier, Elaine, that if our kids are, you know, kind of three to five years developmentally behind their peers, don't, you know, don't look through the lens of where they should be, but look through the lens of where they are and help them get to the next level of independence. What were you going to add?
1: Um, I, just that, that where they are is, um, well, as you say, it's going to be different for different kids. And part of what we want to do is is invite them to, to grow in, in little steps. And so, if, mm-hmm. as you say, if they're able to do something 80% of the time, um, that may be doing it with reminders or with a structure in place. Or So, so that means it doesn't mean that they're doing it completely independently if they're using structures to get it done if they're using alarms or reminders or whatever or or you know accountability of other friends that's that's still them doing it independently and not to sort of undermine it um if, if it's not doing it the way that it, you think it should, if they're getting it done in a system that works for you, for them, sometimes we have to recognize that their systems are going to be different from ours.
0: So I have a lot of questions, so let's see if we can't get through some more of these before finishing up. We have a question um, about another behavior about lying. So we have a number of questions parents asking about that. So do you have suggestions for how parents can deal with their teens lying to cover up behaviors, maybe losing things, forgetting homework, um, different things like that? Mm. (laughs) Diane, you want to start?
2: Yeah, the thing that um, comes up for me when I hear about lying and, and believe me I've got two kids that have a difficult time being honest as well and, I, and it's to start there so if we start with my child's lying to me we're going to approach it very differently than wow my child's having a difficult time being honest in this situation what's going on because lying has a judgment in it so it's like you know all of a sudden it's like they're doing it on purpose and they're doing it wantonly and it's bad, and especially unacceptable, and they're going to be... And they're more pregnant,
1: and they're never going to be
2: in their and life. And they're going to be cheating on their spouses, I and mean, so it's whole like right. sort of thing. So it's kind of like if we start with a premise and a, a, the premise of my child's having a hard time being honest in this situation, then there's lots of different ways you can go from there. So it's kind of like, is he covering up something because he's embarrassed? And if that's the case, how do you help him to feel more comfortable in the environment where he's made mistakes and so we talk about failing forward and making it okay to make mistakes if he's lying because a lot of times our kids lie and they, they remember differently you know as the example I gave about feeding the dog earlier it's like my kid looked at me last night he looked me in the eye and he said mom the garbage can's at the curb and I well, went and it was to it last week it was <laughs> last week and, and, and I well and I went to, you know, take my daughter to school this morning, I pulled in the driveway, and I'm like, the garbage can is not at the curb. That's really <laughs> interesting that he said he was confident that it was, and he looked me in the eye. I could say, how dare he? He was lying to me, blah, blah, blah. Or I could say, well, that was just really interesting. So part of it is just kind of where we start with the word lying. Elaine, what would right. you add in?
0: Well, I often,
1: I often say that our kids struggle with what we call what I call defensive dishonesty. -hmm. Um, They've been so wrong for so long that they get into the habit of trying to make themselves right. Because they're just tired of being wrong all the time and and again, it's not an excuse for the behavior, but it really has yeah. to understand what's motivating it right what's behind it what's what are they trying to avoid by lying and and sometimes yes, it's getting in trouble um but often it's they're trying to avoid embarrassment or shame or feeling like a failure and in those cases um we really want to create an environment where they're learning how to how to be honest with themselves and with other people, so that they can learn to ask for the help they need and get the support they need. Um, the the other thing I would add, and, and with my family, my kids know that my one of my strongest strongest values is honesty, and I would um, much rather them tell me the truth and um, and not worry about the consequences, they're going to get in a whole lot more trouble for lying to me than they are for doing whatever it was they weren't supposed to do, for the most part. Um, And sort of setting that expectation and having some really transparent conversations with my kids about it, has, for me, that's really worked. Um, And I just had a recent experience where, where one of my kids had not told the truth and he finally sort of came clean. And so what we were dealing with as a consequence wasn't about the behavior, but was about the lying. And so we, we had this whole thing about him earning back our trust and what that looked like and how he would have to do that and, you know, when he was at an event and how often he would have to be in touch with us and communicate with us um, so that he could reestablish the trust that we have for him because he knows how important it is. So sometimes it's just being really clear on, on what's really most important to you, um, and that can make a
0: difference we have a couple of questions that have just been about what about sort of as your teenager is growing older um, So, for instance um, you know going going away to college how can you help support them and motivate them and how can you maybe know if it's a a good time for them to go to college or um, if it's not a good time maybe they need a couple more years at home Um, any suggestions on, on that
1: that's a bit that's a lot of questions isn't it
2: (laughs) yeah i'm trying to figure out how to even bottom line it
1: yeah me too um so, so so here's what here's what's coming up for me as i hear the question because i i have older kids so i have kids who are now at this moment 22 19 and 15 and so i have one who's out of the house and one who's in college and one who's still at home and um And what I've noticed is that there's some areas in which they are sort of ready to take on the world more and some areas where they still need my support and they still need my help. And, you know, and I'm lucky because of the work that I do, I've been able to really teach them and train them to be okay with asking for help and asking for support. Um, And so... And that's a huge piece, I think, is to help our kids understand that it's human to ask for help, that everyone needs help, that, you know, we parents need support and help in in our parenting, and we need to get parent training because, you know, it doesn't all come naturally, particularly when we have complex kids, and and that, you know, we're advocating for them at school to get the supports they need, and that that's part of life. Everybody uses and and gets help from each other. Um, And so... I think creating that environment where they can ask for and receive help without feeling guilt or shame about it um, helps them to tell you when they're ready and helps them to be able to ask for what they need and the supports they need and and lets them become part of that decision-making about when they're ready instead of being in that reactive mode of, I'm a teenager, I'm trying to get out of this house because I'm being controlled and I don't want to be controlled. So when you create that collaborative relationship, I think it's, it's easier to make those decisions together because it feels like they know they're being supported and encouraged to become independent and that you're not um, angry at them for not being there yet. Diane, mm-hmm. what would you add?
2: Well, I think the thing that's coming up for me is kind of the the, the, the different levels of scaffolding again. And so it's mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, you want, you want them to know that you want them to be as independent as they can be in making the decisions and the choices and everything else, and you want them to know that you have their back. Mm-hmm. And so okay. it's kind of like, you know, it's just like, okay, you know, it sounds like you've got that. I'll check back in and see how things are going. Yeah. You know, and it's, yeah, I'll be here for you. You know, and so it's, it's like if it doesn't work, let's, you know, let's, let's check in next week and see how it's going. That sounds like a great plan or, what, you know, whatever it is. But you're kind of doing it in a way that, that you're creating the, like a safety net for them yeah. um, as, they're, as they're trying to make some decisions and some choices on their own. Um, and and like you said, uh, and, and I think that what's kind of underlying all of this is kind of the, the more you focus on the relationship, we can't say that enough. Um, If you have that strong relationship or at least the foundations of a relationship in place, you're going to have very different conversations when things go differently than expected.
1: So the other thing I would say, the strategy I use a lot with older teens, is to ask permission. You know, ask permission, may I come in the room, ask permission, I haven't thought about it, would you like to hear it? Can I talk to you about something? Simple ways to give them a sense of control in in the dynamic and not feel like I'm constantly pushing my ideas on them.
0: Okay, great. I think I have two more questions for you. So one is, if you have a teenager who's showing some of those defiant behaviors. We actually had a parent who gave an example of a teen who is swearing to get attention at school. Um, So how can you address that? And in addressing that, are consequences one of the ways to address that?
1: Well, I think where I'll start, Diane, and, and you take it from there, what I would say is um, when there's a particular behavior like that that you want to see change, that it really helps to get very clear, communicate clearly what the expectations are and then what the consequences are in advance, so that then you're not being punitive, it's just, you know, the deal is it's not okay to swear in school, and if you do, then you're going to get detention or whatever the sort of natural consequence is that's decided, then you get to be You know, compassionate mom to say, Well, I'm really sorry that happened, instead of, See, I told you you shouldn't swear in school. Um, because the, the consequence has already been identified and established. And, and whenever possible, when there are behaviors, if you can agree in advance and be clear on what the consequences are, so that you're not coming in afterwards and saying, Oh, you did that, I get your cell phone, you know, when you're less punitive, then they're beginning to learn, um, about natural consequences and that there are consequences for their behavior that that the world imposes on them. I I like to say, let the system be the bad guy so that you get to be the good guy. And, And if you get a system in place and it's clear and everybody knows what it is, then you don't have to be the bad guy. You get to be the compassionate parent that's helping them learn how to manage a difficult situation.
2: So um, so two things that are coming up for me, you know, one is kind of the, going back to curiosity. And so I think we always want to understand, you know, what is it about swearing at school? Has it become a habit? Is it something that he's doing to, because he thinks he's cool, it, it's cool and he's trying mm-hmm. to connect with other kids, you know, kind of really kind of being curious and, and, and approaching it from that way? Because you might be solving a completely different problem <laughs> than my kid is swearing. My kid is feeling socially ostracized and wants to be connected. I mean, that might be advice. Like, my kid is, is choosing the wrong, you know, choosing friends who happen to swear a lot, you know. So you might be solving a different a different challenge, but it, so it's starting by being curious, mm-hmm. okay. um, and, and I think is important.
0: So, okay. Last question for today. So, a couple of questions about how do you know if it's your child's ADHD or Ooh. it's just typical teenage behavior, and does it matter knowing the difference between the two?
2: <laughs> I think that's the answer and the question all at once,
1: isn't it? Yeah, I was going to say we ask this question a lot. Um, you know, it doesn't really matter if 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 whatever's happening in their brain is neurological because of their ADHD or neurological because of their hormones or or you know, or because somebody's girlfriend broke up with somebody yesterday. You know, whatever the reason, you know, teenagers are. Um, fascinating creatures, <laughs> you know, they're volatile and they're um, curious and they're interesting and they're they're learning and they're all sorts of things. And um, if there's a, a chronic behavior that, that you're really seeing the need to address and change that may be, you know, an executive function problem as, as a result of ADHD, then, then yeah, in those cases it matters. Um, but I think oftentimes with our kids, there is a point where we sort of have to say it's, it doesn't matter whether it's it's the ADHD or not, it's or the teenage brain. Um, the question is how do we stay connected with this kid so we can help them figure out how to problem solve through it. Diane, what would you? Brilliantly. Well, add? I think
2: that you know, I, yeah, I think that it's you know, again, it's remembering that it's it's if the if you have tr- most of us have tried that you know, it's cognitive versus neurological. Some of us have tried. The, the naughty, we try the natural consequences, and it, and it doesn't change the behavior. And so if that's the case, then, you know, go back to the, you know, go back to AIDS, go back to understanding and acknowledging and, and getting curious about what's going on in the brain. And um, I think that for me, honestly, the the whole uh, knowing that every aspect of their brain is impact, every aspect of their life is impacted by their teenagerness and about yeah. their ADHD and by their ADHD gives me so much compassion because I remember what it was like to be a teenager, and I know that, you know, it's it's life is so different. And if we can just get back in that framework, and I don't know what it's like to be an add or but I have enough of them in my life that I have, can have some compassion. But it's kind of like if you look at it through that lens, you look at it completely differently. And yeah. if you're, like, scratching your head going, why is this happening, as opposed to, okay, this is happening. What do we want to do about it? Yeah, You're going to approach it very differently.
1: Yeah, mine is not to ask the reason why, right?
2: Yeah, um, exactly.
1: You couldn't pay me to be a teenager again. <laughs> there's just no way when I go through yeah. that again. And I think that at the end of the day, as I sort of wrap this up, you know, I know we, we titled this Getting Through to Your Teenager, but, but, you know, the truth is there's a piece of this that's about, wow, loving and supporting your teenager through their teenage years because we know how hard it is because we all survived it. You know? right. And and that's really what all of this is about. And, you know, at Impact ADHD, there's a lot on the, on the website. There are lots and lots and lots of articles about teens specifically and sort of all of these kinds of issues that we've talked about today. And at, at the end of the day, it's it's about um, loving our kids enough to support them through this difficult phase of their life.
0: I think that was a great last last statement and a way to wrap everything up. Brilliant. So uh, thank you both, Elaine and Diane, for all of your insights and suggestions today. And thank you to all of our participants okay. for joining us.
1: And thank you for having us. It was a truly a pleasure. We are, we're really honored to be doing this for, for both Chad and the NRC. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing uh, series that you guys offer. We're really grateful to be part of it. So thank you.
0: Again, thank you to Elaine and Diane and to all of you for joining us. This concludes our webcast. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes so we can continue to bring great content to you.
1: ADHD challenges continue into adulthood for 35 to 65% of children with ADHD finding strengths, building resilience, and learning to self-advocate will improve your child's chances of succeeding in college, vocational school, or the workforce. Learn how to prepare your child for life beyond high school at www.helpforadhd.org. That's www.help and the number 4adhd.org.